This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have a double standard of aging and women age, you know, they start to age at like 30. <laughs> um, and I think that's why, you know, Botox is so seductive to women in their 30s because it's not really about defying aging. It's about like designing agelessness. It's really about freezing your, your face and time really like right before you hit middle age. To Botox or not to Botox? Caroline, that is a question I honestly never thought I'd be asking myself. And yet, here I am, a 35-year-old woman and a guilty feminist, considering Botox. (laughs) Well, honestly, Kristen, as you know, if money and COVID were no object right now, I would get my forehead shot up tomorrow. Like, why not? Because patriarchal beauty standards, right? (laughs) Like, the feminist voice in my head is telling me, Kristen, girl, you are worth more than your face value. And then I see the giant crevasse between my eyebrows. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I wish I didn't care about my forehead wrinkles, but I really do. Like, part of me hates to admit it, but I think I'd feel better with some Botox. Well, Caroline, according to today's guest, Dr. Dana Berkowitz, we might be going about this whole feminism versus Botox tug of war all wrong, which is actually kind of comforting. You know, the question I get is, right, is Botox good? Is Botox bad? Are you for it? Are you against it? And I I think that trying to construct any sort of intelligent argument within the confines of this debate is is pretty much impossible because the tentacles of our consumer culture, of the beauty industry, of the anti-aging industry, of big pharma, right? These tentacles are so far-reaching and they're so pervasive that rather than talking about, like, is it good or is it bad, we need to focus on the institutional demands placed on women and how these occur within a system of pervasive gender inequality. The tentacles of beauty culture and institutionalized sexism Now, this, this is the kind of feminist Botox discourse I have been longing for, Caroline. (laughs) Same. Dana is a professor of sociology and gender and sexuality studies at Louisiana State University. She's also author of the book Botox Nation, Changing the Face of America. Today, she's going to myth bust that good or bad Botox binary. 
It's all to find out what exactly is Botox selling and why are Caroline and I so fucking tempted to buy it? (laughs) When Dana first started working on her book, Botox Nation, she was 31 and she thought she knew exactly where she stood with Botox. My argument was like, I'm against Botox, okay? Um, And then, um, you know, academic monographs take quite a while to write. So I aged um, as I was researching and writing the book. And during the process of researching and writing the book, I watched my skin begin to sag and wrinkle. And I think I was really surprised at how profoundly this uh, impacted my sense of self. In addition to this, I was interviewing cosmetic surgeons and dermatologists and in the interviews, I asked them to point out like which of my wrinkles could be Botoxed. Um, and it was actually quite agonizing, voluntarily subjecting my face to these close readings by these medical and like beauty experts. And then I did an analysis of media messages on Botox on like women's beauty magazines. That was a terrible idea. I don't advise it for anyone. Why was it a terrible idea? Have you spent much time reading beauty magazines? Oh, I mean, I grew grew up with them. I mean, I think I'm catching your drift. But like, was it even as an academic, did you still find yourself internalizing it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The messages are so powerful and they're so pervasive that, yes, you yes, I found myself internalizing them. And I was I think I was like 35 when I first tried it. Um, and I was really amazed at how refreshed and awake and yeah, even a little bit younger I looked. Um, I remember feeling secretly pleased, um, but also like incredibly overcome with guilt and shame (laughs) about my decision, feeling like I had capitulated to these like very patriarchal and consumerist ideologies I was supposed to be critiquing. And then when it starts to go away, you start seeing the lines reappear. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, you know, it, it like changes your perception of what is good and what is beautiful and what is normal. And so eventually I got it again. Um, and eventually I would say that I probably became a habitual user where I would get it a few times a year for the past, you know, six years, unless I was pregnant or nursing. <laughs> and so... Um, Um, It dramatically changed my perception of beauty and my perception of normalcy. Today, Botox is the most popular cosmetic medical procedure. The injections temporarily paralyze the facial muscles that form expression lines, like frown lines or brow lines. So that's how it reduces the appearance of wrinkles. Kristen, as we learned in Botox Nation, the discovery of Botox as a cosmetic treatment was kind of a fluke. See, Botox is the brand name for a neurotoxin called onobotulinum toxin A. And by the late 80s, doctors had figured out that if you inject Botox into muscle, that neurotoxin stops it from contracting, basically acting like a long-term muscle relaxer. So Botox was initially just used to treat conditions like eye spasms and uncontrollable blinking. Then one day in 1987, a Vancouver ophthalmologist named Jean Carruthers got an unexpected request from a patient. Jean had been treating a woman's eye spasms with Botox injections, and during one visit, the woman was like, Dr. Jean, please shoot me up between my brows again. I love how it makes me look. And Dr. Jean was intrigued. 
Her husband was a dermatological surgeon, so she told him about it, and they decided to run a preliminary trial on Jean's receptionist, Kathy. (laughs) Poor Kathy. Apparently, Kathy had noticeable brow wrinkles, and the couple convinced her to let them experimentally shoot her face up with Botox. And at the very least, Kathy deserved a raise because just four years later, in 1991, Dr. Jean sold the cosmetic treatment to the pharmaceutical company Allergan. Then, in 2002, the FDA greenlit Botox for the cosmetic treatment of moderate to severe frown lines between the eyebrows. What Botox has done is, I mean, it's really transformed the battleground against aging because the only other way you were able to, quote unquote, fix these lines was through surgery, was through facelift or an eye lift, um, because it is quick and easy and um, really has no downtime. It's really, you know, widely marketed to the American every woman. And it's a lot cheaper. Well, it seems a lot cheaper than getting a facelift or um, a cosmetic surgical procedure because it averages about $300. You said seems like. Yeah, it seems like. Because the catch is, is that Botox only lasts like three to six months. And so you have to keep doing it. And so that adds up, right? Figure, you know, two to three times a year, $300. That adds up pretty quickly. Ever since the late 1800s, when ladies' magazines became a thing, women have been sold the idea that we should preserve our youthful appearance by any means necessary. Just as long as your anti-aging efforts aren't too obvious. Otherwise, you'll be shunned as a vain old fool. (laughs) And in the 20 years that cosmetic Botox has been around, the folks getting it have also gotten younger and younger. Because these days, prejuvenation is the new rejuvenation. And Kristen is not making up that portmanteau. Prejuvenation is the industry slang for cosmetic procedures and injectables marketed to folks under 30. So now you hear about women in their 20s getting so-called preventative Botox or baby Botox. In fact, according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, in 2018, there was a nearly 30% increase of folks in their 20s getting Botox. And the whole idea is that if you start Botox early enough and basically keep your brow and forehead just paralyzed enough, you won't develop expression lines to begin with. Just don't move, 20-somethings. Just (laughs) don't move. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dana sheds light on why Zoom life has some of us feeling like withered old hags, and we weigh the pros and cons of Botoxing away resting bitch face. Seriously, don't move. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. We're back with gender studies professor and sociologist Dana Berkowitz. What does the ready and willingness to get Botox say about our culture's 
beauty, our beauty culture's pain tolerance. So it's funny when I interviewed um, Botox providers, they all told me that men were they could not take the pain, um, and I think it's because women we're just used to just you know the idea of a needle in our face is like not that foreign because we're just used to doing things to our face and body that are painful in the pursuit of beauty. Oh, yeah. I mean, I regularly just forcibly rip hair out of my own face. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And think, just think about, like, hair removal in general. Waxing, laser, like, Charles, all that is incredibly painful. High heels are incredibly painful. Spanks are incredibly painful. Just There's an arsenal of things that we do to our bodies that uh, cause pain in the pursuit of beauty. And I think that women are just used to it. And that is, you know, that's just really sad. (laughs) There are also a couple reasons why Botox is primarily sold to women. For one thing, our facial skin is typically more delicate than men's, and we tend to emote more. So all of our smiling, scowling, and side-eyeing crinkles up that delicate skin over and over again, and those crinkles eventually deepen into wrinkles. The Botox solution to that is to temporarily smooth out our wrinkles by restricting our facial expressions. But the feminist take on Botox is much less cut and dried, especially now that women tend to be the ones giving the injections. It used to be, you know, a lot of the early research and scholarship on cosmetic surgery, a lot of the feminist scholarship on cosmetic surgery was critiquing this, you know, male doctor, this male expert who was like constructing this ideal, like feminine body, you know, through through his view of like what perfection should be, right? Now it's so different because dermatology is actually like a very family friendly, you know, uh, women friendly subspecialty of medicine. Um, So there's, you know, women are now injecting other women. And so it's this very uh, different dynamic from what the early feminist scholars uh, were documenting, like in in the 1980s. But again, I think that um, it's very much intertwined with our, you know, these like circulating ideas of post-feminism. This idea that, you know, we can have Um, We can do anything we want as women, as long as we look good while we do it. As Dana notes in Botox Nation, research has found that personally identifying with feminist ideology doesn't magically inoculate you to beauty myths. And Caroline, I personally identify with those findings. Oh, for sure. And as you and I also know, Kristen, deciding to get Botox doesn't magically become a feminist act just because you chose your own choice and went for it. And so what, what it has taught me is that it's like a false choice, right? This notion of is it good? Is it bad? Are you for it? Are you against it? Um, is it empowering? Is it disempowering? That, you know, thinking about it in terms of these binaries is really a false choice. So I think that my own experience and thinking through it and writing through it really illuminated these tensions. (laughs) I'm really interested in getting a little deeper into into that false dichotomy and what it overlooks. Like it's good versus bad, empowered versus disempowered. Like what does that overlook in terms of like us personally making decisions versus all of the forces that are acting on us and and when you just say you're a bad feminist or a good feminist because you did or did not get Botox, like what is that? 
leaving out? Um, We live in a society that encourages women to derive their worth from their physical appeal. Um, And so within this, pursuing and achieving beauty is going to feel good and pleasurable. Because when we're attractive, right, it's it's socially rewarded. So I think we need to think about um, the way that our participation in beauty culture can make us temporarily satisfied with our ability to fulfill this um, projection of a attractive and worthwhile woman. But to say this is an individual choice, I think is really problematic because I think the pressures placed on women to comply with dominant beauty norms are are painfully obvious. And that's really what I try to show in my book. Blaming women for Botox ignores all those tentacles of our sexist culture that Dana mentioned at the top of this episode. Like, okay, Unless we are Alicia Keys, folks will openly comment about how sick and tired we look if we dare to show up at work or a date without makeup on. Particularly in this this era, this like post-feminist era where we believe that um, this like choice feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Women mm-hmm. can embrace their liberated status as long as it's not really at the expense of their feminine appearance, right? Um, so even though we're, we're allowed to like play with the boys in their sandbox, um, our social power still very much resides within our beauty and our bodies. Yeah, a choice is not feminist just because you're a feminist who makes it. Right, right. Um, and, and, and nobody's marching you to the dermatologist with like a gun at your head, right? <laughs> like the that doesn't mean that it's an autonomous choice, right? And just because you worked hard and made the money to buy yourself this Botox doesn't make it empowering, right? <laughs> also, so I'm I'm 35, and my, my perspectives have also changed as I have gotten physically older. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, <laughs> it's much easier to say, <laughs> like, I'm a feminist, I don't need Botox, I'm 25 years old, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. than it is when, so I don't have an 11, I have just like a one. A one. <laughs> um, and it's like just growing, just gets taller and taller every day. It's going on a growth spurt. And, um, <laughs> and I know intellectually that that one does not define me, but God, I think about it a lot. Right, well, do you think about it? more now that we're all on video all the time or do you are you like active on social media I think one of the the consequences of of social media and like selfie culture is like we like sort of turning the the lens on ourselves like literally and we like we are watching ourselves age and like almost like a flip book (laughs) when we like go back and see pictures of ourselves over the years they're very much at our fingertips in ways that we're not before. Yes, I I do think that social media and selfies have impacted my uh, my attention to to my one because I realized one time when I was kind of in a mental spiral over like oh my god how do I look like I'm eight thousand years old now because I saw photos on my phone that I'd posted from like a year before where I'm like what the what happened? And then I remembered like, oh, Kristen, you airbrush your face before <laughs> you post it. Like, it's like I had forgotten what I what I look like in the mirror. 
<laughs> right. Yes. And particularly, so I just learned that Zoom also has filters. I didn't know that. I, I was actually having a meeting with a colleague and I was like, oh, your skin looks really good. She's like, it's a filter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, it's this idea that, you know, looking like yourself isn't good enough anymore. You need to look like you only better. I know. It's funny. I laughed at the part where she was so eager to tell you that it's a filter because yes. <laughs> it's like, it's not that anyone's trying to be sneaky and be like, no, I, I I still look like I'm 25. It's It feels like it is connected to the fact that we do have to stare at ourselves all day on the computer now. Like, I am so self-conscious all of a sudden, so much more this year about my forehead wrinkles and to the point where... A friend of mine on Instagram posted something about it. And I was like, oh, my God, me too. Why is my forehead aging faster than the rest of my body? But I mean, I think that one of the reasons is because um, that's the face that we make when we're really upset. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, I think we're all really upset right now. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> this mom is tired of people asking her if she's upset. I could have gotten a great night's sleep. I could be in the best mood. And people are still like, why are you sad? What happened? I'm like, nothing. I'm so happy. 46-year-old Marjorie Tangeloff says she naturally looks like she's always scowling or frowning. Put another way, it's called resting bitch face. Plastic surgeon Dr. David Schaefer says he has the solution, a procedure that makes people look friendly. Downward that was a clip from a 2019 Inside Edition story titled, Mom Gets Botox to Look More Friendly. <laughs> and as grammatically incorrect and absurd as that might sound, it speaks to one of the deeper reasons why Botox has blown up. Trying to look happy and um, nice all the time is exhausting. And I think that Botox can, you know, sort of liberate the face, uh, rescue the face from having to do that work of always looking cheerful and and, and happy. Um, so part of it is that for sure. Um, we just don't like the way we look when we're when we're skeptical. Um, and it's not even that we don't like the way we look when we're skeptical. It's like you know people don't like the way we look when we're skeptical. And so I think why Botox is so enticing. To, uh, to women is that it can liberate the face from its, you know, resting bitch state and it produces this like flattening of affect. Um, so we, we can't really emote. Um, we can't really appear perplexed or piss off. Um, and so in terms of emoting, right, I think that's really uh, enticing to women. In 2018, researchers at Northwestern University surveyed hundreds of Botox patients. They found that in addition to, you know, wanting to look more attractive or feel better about themselves, about 60% of those people specifically wanted to look good in a professional setting. That jibes with Dana's research, too. She noted how women often describe Botox as a way to boost their career. For instance, an anthropology professor she interviewed got Botox, and her post-Botox student evaluations were noticeably more positive. The professor that I interviewed, I think that her story is, is really interesting because, because her students found her for like more friendly and more deferent qualities that like somehow made her a better professor um, than she was one semester earlier when she could actually furrow her brow. And, and, and furrowing your brow is like an expression of intellectual skepticism. Um, and so, um, and I also think that this illuminates the the link between um, looking good 
and the, the social and economic rewards that come from beauty, um, particularly for women, right? Because our evaluations, right, they eventually go into our dossier, which, you know, they're reviewed for our tenure and promotion cases, right? And so there's like actual rewards that come from looking different as a woman. And I think that's really troubling. There's also a related theory called the facial feedback hypothesis. It proposes that controlling your facial expression can directly affect your feelings. Like, if you want to feel happier, smile, ladies. Or in the case of Botox, if you want to feel less irritated, temporarily paralyze your frown muscles. And so there is some really fascinating research um, done by a German scientist, Andreas Hennenlauter, um, where he conducted an experiment to test the facial feedback hypothesis. And he had half of his female subjects um, who had Botox and another half who didn't, right, like as a control group, um, imitate these angry expressions in an MRI scanner. And he found that the women with Botox-impaired brows were unable to make the expressions and they had significantly lower levels of activity in uh, the part of their brain that activates anxiety and anger. And so what I argue is that Botox functions as uh, an emotional lobotomy of sorts in the way that it emancipates women from having to vigilantly police expression and actually, like lobotomy, right, reduces the negative feelings that produce them. Oh, it's like the new mother's little helper. Yeah. Yeah, except it doesn't make you feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, an emotional lobotomy does not... It does not sound like an antidepressant because uh-huh. or or even like I mean Caroline and I are both um very highly therapized. Like I just hear my therapist being like, but you aren't dealing with the issues. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and you're not. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. <laughs> the claims around Botox have even gone as far as to say that Botox can cure depression. But that is hardly accurate. Botox is not clinically approved as a mental health treatment. And as Dana told us, a lot of the research advancing these kinds of claims are funded by Allergan. You know, the company that owns Botox. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wade into the unregulated world of cheap Botox and med spas. Don't pop off. We're back with Dr. Dana Berkowitz, author of Botox Nation. This is a very oversimplified question, but I'm going to ask it. Mm -hmm. Is Botox a rich white lady thing? (laughs) To an extent, yes, and to an extent, no. What is really unique about Botox is the way that it's marketed to the American every woman, right? It's like not marketed as a rich white lady thing. Um, But the expense of Botox suggests that it is like a relatively privileged practice. And we, you know, tend to forget that m- most women don't have $1,000 a year to spend on Botox. And most women, you know, many women don't even have like health insurance. Um, so while it is marketed uh, to the American every woman, the, the fact that it averages about $1,000 a year um, makes it only available to a privileged few. There's also research that indicates that uh, 
beauty ideals that women um, subscribe to and the resulting beauty work that follows is like deeply associated with social class. Um, I think it's really fascinating that, um, you know, poor people look older earlier than their wealthier counterparts, but anxiety and fear about aging is much more common among middle-class and rich women. And so right, the, the irony is that, right, those who lack the financial wherewithal to purchase cosmetic enhancements like Botox are more hopeless and, you know, actually probably more realistic about aging um, because they, you know, they can't afford the expensive anti-aging regimens of the wealthy. You know, this is like really ironic that the women who are able to keep their youthful appearance the longest um, are the women who actually feel the defeat of age most severely. And what about the beauty ideal that it reinforces? Like what kind of what kind of face are people aspiring to when they get Botox? So they're aspiring to a face that looks like you, only better. <laughs> um, it looks like just the best version of you. You want to look natural. You don't want to look like you've had any work done. You want to get Botox, but you don't want to look like you've had Botox. Right? There's the catch-22 as you're supposed to you know, conform to these gendered beauty ideals, but you're not supposed to look like you do. Um, you can't make it too obvious because if you, then if it's too obvious, kind of looks like you cut corners and uh, maybe went to a medical spa, right? And so this is where the, the class dynamics also come in. The class dynamics of Botox have also intensified as injections have gotten cheaper. Dana actually points out that finding a good deal on Botox can be one of the key motivating factors for women to pull the trigger and get it. But discount Botox users beware. Cosmetic Botox has helped spawn a new, largely unregulated industry of so-called medical spas. In the past two decades, thousands of these places have sprung up in strip malls across the country, offering aesthetic procedures like laser hair removal, chemical peels, and, of course, Botox. But safety regulations vary from state to state, and there's no standard legal definition of what constitutes medical, let alone a medical spa. And this has resulted in a notable gender dynamic. Most of the state lawmakers who have attempted to pass med spa regulations are women, and many of their proposed regulations have been voted down by male-dominated legislatures. Yeah, because med spas largely cater to women who are paying out-of-pocket for cosmetic procedures, the risk factors of unregulated med spas are often downplayed as simply the price some women will pay for vanity. What surprised me so much when I was doing the research for this book was like, there's like, there's no federal regulation in who can inject Botox. The consumers of these procedures um, that you would get at a medical spa are predominantly women. And the practitioners are predominantly men. And so um, I think that can tell us a lot about the ways by which this reproduces gender inequality in terms of like who is the provider, right? Who is the consumer and how these don't have any regulation. So, for instance, licensed cosmetologists and estheticians are only legally allowed to perform procedures on the skin's surface, like getting a facial. But Botox injections should only be performed either by medical providers like dermatologists or by a nurse under a doctor's direct supervision. 
As for med spas, what Dana was referencing was how a lot of them are owned by male doctors, and med spas can play fast and loose with who's doing the Botox because there's so little oversight. Like, even though a med spa might be run by a doctor or have a medical director on staff, that doesn't necessarily mean that the doctor will be doing the injections. So basically, before you cash in on a Groupon for some cheap Botox, do your homework and ask the med spa about their credentials and who will actually be performing the injections. Yeah, Kristen, one thing I read about that just horrified me are Botox parties, like like Tupperware parties, but with needles and booze. And they tend to be held either at med spas or in people's homes. (laughs) Yeah, on a recent episode of Selling Sunset, one of my favorite garbage reality TV shows, they actually had a Botox and burgers party. Here's real estate broker and arch villainess Christine preparing for her party. We want, I wanted to do something really, really big. And I invited every broker in Los Angeles. So I feel like if we do Botox, they're going to come. I think we're in Hollywood after all, right? And then we have some wine and, you know, drinks. We can boost people up before we put needles in them. Oh, Christine. Yikes. Like, that, that does not sound like an ideal environment to get some neurotoxin injected into your face. Now, if you're getting Botox from a licensed medical professional and not at a med spa offering discount filler, the side effects are rare. But in poorly trained hands, injections can cause problems like eyelid or eyebrow droopiness. Yeah, we heard from one listener, Chelsea, whose first and last Botox injection left her with extreme headaches and lethargy for a year. And let us not forget... When Kim Kardashian had a bad reaction to Botox in a 2010 episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I don't know what to do. Like, my eyes won't stop watering. I'm sure it's just what happens after you get Botox. Thank you so much. What are you doing? I'm making an ice pack for my eye. You're so dramatic. I'm not so dramatic. You don't even know what this feels like. Seriously, something's wrong. This isn't right. Medical side effects aren't the only trade-offs to consider, though. Kristen, like I said earlier, I would totally Botox, but I think the only thing that would dissuade me would be if I could no longer quizzically raise an eyebrow. Like, seriously, if I cannot communicate with my eyebrows, who am I? (laughs) Caroline, this feels a little ridiculous to say out loud, but I wonder... If Botox would make me less funny, like I'm a very facially active communicator and storyteller, which, of course, is why I'm a fucking (laughs) podcaster. But I would definitely rather have a funny old resting bitch face than look unbothered and get fewer laughs. I'm just being honest. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. But Kristen, you know who would roll her eyes at this conversation? Who? Frances McDormand. That is one woman who does not give a fuck. Frances McDormand has been in Hollywood for decades, and she has famously avoided the pressure to get any work done. Here she is pointing out her wrinkles to an incredulous Katie Couric. I think it's fantastic that you have embraced your age. And I'm wondering if by embracing it, I mean, do you ever have these moments when you see yourself on screen, Frances, and you think, oh! 
Oh, yeah. But, it, you know, look, it's not like I don't look at my face and go, whoa, wow, look at that. What the? But I also, at the same time, that, that one right there, that one, that's Pedro. That's my son. 20 years of going, hi, <laughs> wow, or oh, my God. It, you know, this is the map. This is the roadmap. Caroline, I definitely appreciate Francis's wrinkle philosophy, you know, especially in an era when we are so focused on our faces. It's helpful to remember that we don't only have to see our crow's feet and frown lines as negative marks against us, you know? Totally. Because it is telling that a highly accomplished woman not getting Botox is a Katie Couric interview-worthy topic. And it also reminds me of that that kind of feminist moral binary we started our conversation with. It's like if you get Botox and nobody can tell, you're doing it right. But if you get it and your face is noticeably frozen, well, then it's bad and you're just trying too hard, which is super messed up. When people say, oh, she, you know, she looks so fake. Um, she looks so Botox. She looks so frozen. Right? These women are doing... These women are doing what they're told to do, <laughs> basically. Um, they either have just, you know, maybe done too much or they didn't go to the right provider because they couldn't afford it. Mm, so it's a lot of class and morality mm-hmm. all tied up together because natural beauty is... is Effortless. Yeah. Right. And there's, I mean, there's really no such thing as natural beauty. <laughs> right. <laughs> So for unladylike listeners and maybe mm-hmm. <coughs> hosts um, debating uh-huh. <laughs> whether to Botox or not to Botox, <laughs> what what would you recommend we consider okay. as we answer that question for ourselves? Okay, so I think you should consider that once you start, you probably won't stop. Hey, I talk about Botox as addictive, and it is. And I know this from not just from the research I conducted, but from my own experience. Um, it is, it's, you know, it's like dyeing your hair. Once you start, you oftentimes don't stop, right? And so if you want to start, um, know that you are signing up for a, probably a lifetime of, of Botox use. And in addition to it being addictive, it's also a gateway drug. It's the marijuana of cosmetic procedures. Um, You will likely move on to dermal fillers, which are more expensive than Botox. And eventually you might get so comfortable with needles in your face that you are more open to surgical procedures. For your listeners in their 20s and 30s, please don't be seduced by the claim that Botox is preventative. It's only preventative if you keep on using it. And that means you have to continue to get injections every three to six months for the rest of your lives. <laughs> um, which you probably will do if you start to use Botox. Um, so if I can't talk you off the Botox ledge, at least just wait until you're older. <laughs> I guess that's my advice. Well, Kristen, did Dana talk you off the Botox ledge? You know, she did. I oh. mean, at least at least for now. I, I, I'll never say never, but in the process of 
making this episode and talking to her, learning how Botox works, and just really having to think about that one, that giant wrinkle (laughs) between my eyebrows and why it bothers me so much. I feel like my next step before considering Botox is I want to, I need some more spiritual filler, okay? Um, there you go. <laughs> you know, like I I want to keep working on the deeper insecurity that no amount of Botox will be able to fill. And um, I don't know, maybe this is like a weird switcheroo, but I think... <laughs> I think I'm going to get some more tattoos instead for now. Oh, yeah. Because apparently I just, like, really need some, like, needles in my body. (laughs) Anyway. But, Caroline, what about you? She didn't talk me off the ledge. She talked me, like, a little bit down from the ledge. Mm. Like, maybe I'm spreading out a picnic blanket, you know, putting on some sunscreen and thinking about it a little bit longer. And I, I I wish I could say, and this is where I need to do some work because I feel honestly like hashtag bad feminist apologetic about it. Um, it's really not because of the feminist or beauty industry tentacle considerations. A lot of it has to do purely with the financial aspect. And so when Dana talks about how, like, once you pop, you can't stop, mm-hmm. that to me is is scary from a purely financial perspective. Because, Kristen, I already spend like a bonkers amount of money on creams, serums, face washes, like things that are actively anti-aging. So A, what's so different about Botox other than it like hurts physically (laughs) and freezes my face versus just like moisturizes my face? So I don't know, like I do think that I I envision myself getting it at some point because like the way you feel about your one between your eyes, I feel very distracted by my forehead wrinkles. So I feel like it's kind of an inevitability. But who knows? I mean, again, like five years from now, maybe I'll be like, man, I'm fucking Frances McDormand. You hear that? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, Caroline? It's also totally okay if you aren't like Frances McDormand. I mean, I think that's also a big takeaway of this episode is not not to get choice feminism right. about it. It's right. like we need to recontextualize this conversation entirely because those tentacles, I can't shut up about them. They are <laughs> they are vast and um, they are hard to escape. And the fact of the matter is, like, would I look better with Botox? Yeah. But... Just in the place for me where I'm at right now, I'm okay holding off. And I'm really, really interested to hear what listeners have to say. And as for your point about the the financial, I mean, that's why we got to keep making podcasts. We can <laughs> get you right. some Botox money, okay? <laughs> we'll work it out with the financial advisor. Exactly. Exactly. At our local med spa. <laughs> You can check out Dana Berkowitz's book, Botox Nation, Changing the Face of America, wherever books are sold. And y'all can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. 
And you can also support Kristen and me directly by joining our Patreon. You'll get weekly bonus episodes full of listener advice, political and pop culture recaps, and so much more at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is a senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Production help from Camila Salazar. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Caroline Irvin. And Kristen Conger of Unladylike Media. Next week... I was casually dating somebody at the time and I remember them telling me, you know, I don't feel anything when I touch your face. Don't worry about it. But it didn't it didn't really matter what they said. I could see it. I could feel it. It was as if my skin was crawling all the time. We're talking adult acne. What causes it? How it impacts our confidence and how we can manage our breakouts without our mental health breaking down. Y'all don't want to miss this episode or any episode. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Uh, My favorite quote from Gene Carruthers is, I haven't frowned since 1987. Oh, Gene. Gene, that sounds like a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Stitcher.